This is Jonah Chester and Paul Herman with your local news coming to you from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Text messages that came to light during a House hearing today show that members of a senator's staff were involved in a plan to overturn the 2020 election. Specifically, Republican staffers for Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson plan to deliver a document declaring former President Trump the victor of the 2020 election. The planned document was never delivered after members of the vice president's after members of Vice President Pence's staff advised against it. The staffers claim that the document was a legal strategy to prepare for future lawsuits around the election, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Those plans have opened the staffers to legal liability, and fines may be levied against them for involvement in insurrection. Senator Ron Johnson has distanced himself from the staffers, claiming no knowledge of their plan. Governor Tony Evers signed an executive order today banning unreasonably expensive gasoline. Complaints about gas gouging can go to the state's Department of Agriculture, Trade, and Consumer Protection. The move comes as the average price of gas reached $4.83 per gallon in Wisconsin. Evers' order is a temporary measure. It expires in December. GOP gubernatorial contender Rebecca Clayfish took aim at Governor Evers for the move, calling it nothing more than an election year stunt. Previously, in 2019, Evers had included an eight-cent gas tax increase to his proposed budget, but the measure was removed by Republican legislators, reports the Associated Press. Michael Gableman, the former state Supreme Court justice now spearheading a review of the 2020 election in Wisconsin, is appealing a ruling finding him in contempt of court. The ruling came after Gableman interrupted testimony and made misogynistic remarks about an opposing lawyer. The ruling also references Gableman's office's continuing refusal to hand over documents to comply with an open records request, according to the Capital Times. The fines amount to $2,000 per day until he complies. Gableman's appeal cites several errors in the ruling, including claiming the fine is disproportionate to the violation. Wisconsin Attorney General Josh Call is reaffirming his office's commitment to investigating sexual abuse allegations brought against clergy and faith leaders. The move came after increasing pressure brought from advocacy groups that accused the attorney general of dragging his feet on bringing all the powers of his office to bear. The Department of Justice has made document requests of the Catholic Diocese of Wisconsin, but has not followed up those requests with legal action when when they were not forthcoming. So far, the legal review of faith leaders that was launched over a year ago has only brought charges against two abusers, according to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Call said the department has been hindered by budget cuts, but vowed to investigate all allegations brought to his department. County Executive Joe Parisi joined officials from Alliant Energy and the SunVest Solar Company in Cottage Grove today to kick off construction of a new solar farm. Also known as the Yahara Solar Project, the 90-acre solar farm will be able to power 3,000 homes in Dane County or 3,800 electric cars. The solar farm is scheduled to finish construction and begin operations early next year. The Madison Metropolitan School District is continuing their program to offer free breakfasts and lunches for children ages 18 and under during the summer. The meals are available Monday through Friday at schools and community sites across the city. The meals must be eaten on-site, but will be available to all children regardless of their enrollment, according to the Capital Times. The meals will be available until July 29th at the schools and through August 12th at the community sites. A list of locations is available on the Madison Metropolitan School District's website. 
And now for today's COVID numbers. There were 1,330 new confirmed COVID cases across Wisconsin yesterday, with an average of 1,415 new cases being reported every day for the past week. Additionally, 11.5% of all COVID tests came back positive over the past week. There were no new deaths from the virus in Wisconsin yesterday, although the total number of people who have died from the virus now sits at 13,100 people. Here in Dane County, we continue to sit at a medium level of community spread for the virus. There were 806 new confirmed cases of the virus in the county yesterday, as 60 people are currently hospitalized from COVID. Today, news broke that blues guitarist, blues guitarist Jim Schwal has passed away at the age of 79. Schwal was active in the Madison music scene after a long career in the music industry. Schwal had a musical partnership with Corky Siegel, and together they formed the Schwal Siegel Band, which was active from 1966 to 1974. The band was based out of Chicago, but toured nationally, bringing the blues to new audiences. In 1991, Schwal moved to Madison, where he became a music host on WRT. His show, For the Sake of the Song, aired on Tuesday mornings. And now on to today's top stories. Last Friday, June 17th, a peaceful rally against Asian hate was held downtown in Madison. The protest is to promote the racial diversity and equality towards Asian students on campus. WORT reporter Layla Ma has the story. Last Friday, the UW-Madison Asian student community organized a protest and a rally against Asian hate. They marched from the state capitol to Library Mall. The whole protest lasted for two hours. One of the protest organizers made her point. The first protest is more targeted to the public to let people realize that there are three Asian UW-Madison students get attacked on the campus areas, Asian people will feel more inclusive because there are a lot of local people and a lot of minority people. They come here to make some way for Asian people to gather. We stand together. Hopefully, UW will pay more attention to the Asian student rights and also those minority student rights. Cody Newberg, another participant, has lived in Madison for over 30 years. This rally, it's really starting to make everyone aware of what's happening here. The protest has been wonderfully, it's been one of the most calm and like collected protests I've ever seen. They're opening up arms and that's what this is all about. Diversity between barriers of cultures that people are starting to pick up. Madison's made for that. That's what we're all here for. I've, that's why I'm here, because I want to make a change. I want to make a difference. Lee Jiang is about to start his senior year at UW-Madison. After all this happens, after all this voice, things must be changed. People speak out their voices, telling about their attitudes and opinions, and that matters. Four suspects were arrested on Saturday in connection with attack. The police said they are still investigating this assault as well as two others that happened in the downtown area in the last two weeks. Madison police say they do not believe the assault to be racially motivated and appear to be random, but some students and community members are pushing back on that. 
more than 300 students, staff, and faculty, as well as more than 75 alumni and more than a dozen student groups, have sent a statement to the UW Madison administration, including Police Chief Christian Roman, Interim Chancellor John Scott, and UW System President Jay Rothman. In the letter, campus community members criticize UW Madison administration for not doing more to support Asian students. The letter urged local law enforcement to investigate the case more thoroughly, fairly, and swiftly. It calls on the administration to work towards a more systematic solution to preventing similar attacks and to develop a mandatory DEI course for students. Yesterday, at an emergency meeting of UW Madison students' government, the Associated Student of Madison or ASM unanimously passed a message of support for Asian community and campus safety. In that message, ASM took issues with the university administration's dismissive attitude in some of their responses and demanded an apology. The message also calls on law enforcement to not prosecute. Alleged attackers with a hate crime because of their minor status. It recommends that suspected attackers receive mandatory education on APIDA history and community service sentences if convicted. It also urged the Madison Police Department to investigate more, but refrain from using overly confrontational or invasive interrogation techniques on minors. UW Madison officials say they are offering mental health services for Asian and APIDA students experiencing distress, trauma, or safety concern about attacks. Students are planning an APIDA-led protest for this Friday, the 24th, from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. downtown. In an email to the campus community this afternoon, UW Madison interim chancellor Scott described that Madison police had described more about the victims of two other attacks believed to be related. In that, the chancellor wrote, "Quote another incident of battery occurred downtown on June 12 that involved a white male with no connection to campus and a Hispanic male undergraduate student who went to the hospital for his injuries." Reporting for WORT News, I'm Leila Ma. Well, it's the summer solstice, and today the city was alive with the sound of music. Today was Make Music Madison, a day of free and outdoor music in over 100 locations throughout the city, performed by well, anyone. It's part of a larger celebration that takes place in over 1,000 cities around the world on the summer solstice each year. We sent reporter Madeline Plattenberg out into the field for more. Today, I attended Make Music Madison on the Capitol Square, where I asked musicians. About what inspired them to attend Make Music Madison. My name is Lucy, and I'm 14 years old. My name is Laurelin, and I am 11 years old. I'm Lucas. I'm 15.、Uh, our group is called Stargrass Band. We've been playing together for five years. We love playing Irish music, American music, Celtic music, basically every kind of music. So we played last year on Halloween. We wanted to see what it was like, see more of Madison, play music. And we loved it so much that we decided, let's do it again. My name is Ellie, and I'm part of the Solidarity Sing Along. 
March 2011, we sang for 2,432 times Monday through Friday from noon to one in the Capitol. And then Evers got elected and we started going. And once he took office, we started going to Tuesdays and Fridays. And then COVID came and now we do Fridays. But we've always done Make Madison music. So we just, we do it whatever day that is. It's such a cool thing. You know, I mean, it's it's just a good thing to be, and it's sort of like a reunion for us because people kind of drift in that wouldn't come normally because there's music all over the city, which is so cool. Free music. Uh, my name is Dwayne Keys. I play the harmonica and sing. And I'm Doug Barrett, and I play guitar and sing. So, hello, I'm Max. Uh, harmonica. And uh, as a duo, we play as the harmonica hour. We pattern our show kind of like an old radio show. Because generally we'll joke around a little and tell some stories, and then we do quite a wide variety of tunes. In one form or fashion since 1973. So we had a couple bands, we had a blues band, and then for a long time we did wedding music, wedding band music, and and but it's a lot easier just to do a duo, and I can't stay up till one anymore. So I can yeah, we're, play, we're no playing more, at no two, more bars. We're playing at two in the afternoon instead of two in the morning now. <laughs> Except maybe air conditioning outside. Well, the weather, but you know, we made it. We're there. We had rainy People rainy. had a good time. You know. Hi, uh, my name is Mike Huberty, and I'm Wendy Lynn Marcus, and we're with Sunspot. Uh, well, today we're doing an acoustic duo, but usually we do, uh, we're a rock trio, and so guitar, bass, drums kind of thing, and it's uh, like music like a Cheap Trick or something like that, so it's, it's pop rock and it's fun. Original, <laughs> original yeah. music, and today we're doing just a scaled down version of our live rock show, so little acoustic versions, but still with the same original song. Well, it's a beautiful day, it's the summer solstice, and we always think that you should, um, do something to celebrate uh, the solstice, and we couldn't think of anything better to do uh, than play our music for some people. But no, I think I think they did a nice thing. It's nice to see music in every street corner and people appreciating it, and um, it's just a lot of fun. And so we've been doing it for the past six years. Yeah, it, it's well organized too. The setup, the website, and everything, finding places to play was really well done, I thought. And there's people here ready to hear music. So what more could we ask for, right? I'm Mike Betzel on trumpet. Matt Miller on bass. Keith Curran on keyboards and guitars. That's awesome. I'm Dave, I play guitar and I sing. I'm doing air quotes right now for you at home. Chris, drums. <laughs> we have sort of a core group that has been playing together ever since college. This is our first band. This was our first band. And a number of us have been in other things since, but sort of always hung on and, and make music Madison is sort of our one time a year to really get the whole group back together and just kind of cut loose and have some fun. It's a cool event. Yeah. Sweetheart Tripwire, which <laughs> that got voted on in college. It was, a, it was a, a name on a, a big long list of names on a napkin that slowly got crossed off. Well, we've been doing it for years. Uh, Keith Curran, who was not a Carroll College guy, but was a recent addition. Uh, he does a fantastic job of finding venues in the city they're looking for for a group and so he booked these for us today. We're playing here at State Street and then tonight at uh, Willie Street Park. 
I'd say we, we like playing and also enjoying the music around the city too. Uh, it's nice to see a big mix. So we followed a, a great metal uh, music act right before us and they sounded great. And it's a chance to get out and enjoy music of all types. So. I don't think I would change a thing. They even gave us free water bottles. Yeah, that was pretty awesome. <laughs> Start expanding it beyond just Madison because like I'm playing in Wanakee tonight And it's not officially part of make music Madison, but it'd be awesome to get you know Wanakee Verona Middleton get all those part of the same event too because it's basically all Madison reporting for WORT news I'm Madeline Plattenberg It's now 6.22 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Around 16% of Madison residents currently live in poverty, according to data from the U.S. Census Bureau. But a new program announced today is hoping to alleviate that burden for some of those residents with a weekly check in the mail. WORT producer Nate Weggehout has more. Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway announced today the launching of a new guaranteed income pilot program for the city of Madison. The program, called the Madison Forward Fund, will provide 155 Madison households with a monthly cash payment of $500 for one year. This money is unconditional, with no work requirements or restrictions on how the money can be spent. Mayor Rhodes-Conway says that the program is needed now more than ever, especially for families. Low-income families have weathered the storm of the pandemic with some extra help from the federal government, but many of those pandemic programs have now come to an end, just as families are getting pummeled by high inflation and a shortage of childcare. The Economic Policy Institute recently found that the average cost of infant care in Wisconsin is 48% more expensive than the average cost of a public college. To qualify for monthly funds, households must have an annual income of less than 200% of the federal poverty line, or around $36,000 a year for a family of two. Then, the applicants will be chosen at random. Mayor Rhodes-Conway says that the program has two main goals. The purpose of this program is to help our most vulnerable citizens during these tumultuous times, but also to build momentum for a sustained federal program that will bring stable support for families. Those who are chosen to participate in the program will then be given the opportunity to participate in a year-long research study focusing on how the direct cash payments influences their lives. Catherine Magnuson is the director of UW's Institute for Research on Poverty. She says being able to show how direct cash payments help those who receive them can have benefits on a national scale. We have a lot to learn, and the one thing we have learned uh, studying poverty policies for a long time is that having good evidence and being able to tell compelling stories about what money can do for families and for communities is critically important. So I'm proud as a citizen of Madison to be supporting this effort, and I'm even more excited for knowing that we are going to learn a lot together. Most importantly, we're going to learn from the families who are participating in the program, and we're going to bring that evidence to policymakers, advocates, policy administrators, and convince them that cash, actual cash, 
can be a powerful tool to fighting poverty. In addition to the 155 households receiving the money, 200 households who are not receiving the guaranteed income will also participate in the study as a control group. The program first got off the ground last year when Mayor Rhodes Conway became one of the first mayors to join the Mayors for a Guaranteed Income, or MGI. That group is a coalition of cities across the U.S. advocating for various guaranteed income policies. Mayor Rhodes Conway says that this group of mayors is looking to create change on a national scale. Fortunately, the coalition of cities pushing for guaranteed income has grown to have more than 80 participating mayors. And this network of mayors is working together to advocate for a guaranteed income at the local, state, and federal level. Other cities involved in the coalition include Atlanta, Georgia, St. Paul, Minnesota, and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The money will actually come from two different sources, and the city itself is not footing the bill. In December of 2020, MGI announced that Madison would receive up to $600,000 to kick off the program. That money came from Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey. The money has been used for administrative purposes and has helped set up and design the program. The other portion of the funds, $930,000, comes directly from the Madison Forward Fund through private donations from groups such as MGI, UW Health, and Alliant Energy Foundation. This will be the money that actually goes to Madison residents. The program is entirely funded by non-city taxpayer dollars, according to the Madison Forward Fund website. Those funds will be distributed to Select Households by Task, a Madison-based administrative services company. The city is accepting applications for the new program starting today until July 3rd. You can apply for the program online on the Madison Forward Fund website. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. With the end of Roe v. Wade in sight, Wisconsin needs to contend with a tangled web of abortion laws stretching back to the state's earliest years. Tomorrow, the state legislature will hold a special session to address the issue, but the Republican-controlled legislature is likely to gavel in and gavel right back out. Jonah Chester from, Joan Chester from the Wisconsin News Connection breaks down the state's 173-year-old abortion ban here in Wisconsin. Democratic Attorney General Josh Call says laws that have gone unenforced for a long time could eventually become invalid. He says he won't enforce Wisconsin's 1849 ban, and the policy will likely face lawsuits if Roe is overturned. We are in a process right now of evaluating what the different legal options are in the state, but who files those or what the exact uh, arguments raised are, I can't say at this point. Democratic Governor Tony Evers ordered the Republican-controlled state legislature to convene tomorrow to vote on repealing Wisconsin's pre-Civil War abortion ban. Legislative leaders say they'll gavel out of the special session without taking action, leaving the measure in place. Abortion remains legal in Wisconsin until the U.S. Supreme Court hands down a final decision. In preparation for the potential end of Roe, Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin plans to pause abortions after Saturday until the courts weigh in on whether the 1849 ban is enforceable. This is Jonah Chester reporting. Time is now 6.32 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Jonah Chester, here with my co-host, Paul Herman. Thanks for joining us. For our newest feature, In the Round, feature contributor Heron Splinter went to the Broom Street Theater to see the world premiere of the play, 
Happy Landings. It's been a long time since theater has been present in a non-digital form for Madison audiences. Well, for a new feature segment, I went to see Happy Landings in person at the Broom Street Theater. Here at WORT, we have not covered something from Broom Street Theater for over a year. Welcome to In the Round, the Madison Theater Beat. I'm Heron Splinter. I've always found theaters comforting places to be, and Broom Street Theater is certainly that. For those new to Madison, despite its name, Broom Street Theater is located off Willie Street. It is tucked in the middle of a city block with an asphalt driveway leading from the street to its colorfully painted facade. Inside, the rectangular building is nearly fully dedicated to a black box theater space, which is theater without a traditional stage and reconfigurable seating. But this time, the seating was pretty conventional. Just three rows below the tech booth looking out at a concrete stage. The pre-show staged was bathed in red light. In one corner, there is a triangle of desks reminiscent of today's bright and colorful open office designs. In the opposite corner, two wooden chairs and a table. On a black wall behind them sits four posters of famous civil rights leaders, including Maya Angelou and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Lastly, on the far sides of the stage are a French cafe and a daybed. The French cafe is made from two chairs, an upturned steel garbage can, and a faux street sign that says, Bonjour. This is a clue to the place charmingly insincere attitude. The story of Happy Landings revolves around a high-flying and drudgery-filled life of writing and publishing. We follow Floyd Tucker, played by Brian Royston, as he begrudgingly adapts classic tales with happy endings. Think Romeo and Juliet waking up at the end and going on a honeymoon to Cabo. He yearns to publish his own writings one day. After getting rejected by a publishing magnate named Placenta Marx, he then writes in a false identity. He says that the submitted manuscript was written by Floyd Tucker, his invented brother who committed suicide, and won't Placenta please reconsider the manuscript? The ruse works, making Placenta fall in love with the fictional dead brother in the process, jilting her former lover and causing author jockeying and eventually jeopardizing the real Floyd's job. This leaves him in a moral quandary and a love rectangle with a fictional dead brother and publishing executives who want to secure their business at nearly all costs. One gets the sense that the writer of this play, Pamela Monk, delights in making fun of the publishing world. The themes of Happy Landings revolve around careers, confusing professional relationships, and the fads of selling books. The play reads more as satire, but contains heavy dramatic elements, like suicide, that keep it from floating away. The writing also keeps the audience at a distance. It only dips us down into a pool of satisfying romance or conflict infrequently. Monk seems more interested in displaying the machinations and tit-for-tat behavior of the characters. To this end, intimate portraits of personality are foregone for plotting, concepts, and choices. We don't ever get to know very much about why Miss Placenta Marks falls for the dead writer, but we do get to find out how it changes her life. The high-level circumstances remind me almost of a sitcom in the way it sets up story pieces, then chips them out onto the fairway to see how they interact. 
but there is a higher level of complexity here that a long running time affords. If attending, one can expect to be surprised at how this complex story unfolds. At the end of Happy Landings, the audience is left with a fittingly happy ending. The various characters secure lucrative employment, or subdued acceptance of their newfound prospects. At the end of the show, we are told not to hide who we are from others. It's an all's well that ends well kind of conclusion that resonates rather unexpectedly. The farce betrays itself in a great way and really connects to what's real before letting the audience go. The director, Jan Levine Thal, put just the right cherry on top. For the night of the play I saw, Thal played the publisher, Placenta Marx. She filled in for Martha White, who was out sick. It was a unique moment to see what the director had in mind for the role, even if the lines were read from a cell phone, which, I will add, was elegantly hidden behind a book or paper. The performance from Thal was tender and apt. It was impressive to see so much of her character despite not rehearsing for this role. Brian Royston as Floyd Tucker also had a lot to offer. His performance had a purpose and direction. He is quite the storyteller. He used a large vocal range to great effect, especially in conflict. Although there was some dead air in his delivery, he was always driving towards the next moment. I never felt left behind. Playing Floyd's two married co-workers were Kimberly Onyekwe and Megan Ayers. It was always a joy to watch them bounce off each other on stage. In advising and encouraging Floyd, they rose to great acting heights and volumes. Ares and Onyekwe both set standards of in-the-moment acting for this play. I hope to see more of them and their infectious laughs in future productions. The calmer duo of a publishing company owner and star writer were played by Stephen E. Smith and Joel Davidson, respectively. Their cool personas played off each other very well. Joel's experience in theater was evident in his devilish confidence on stage. Stephen's portrayal of a jealous lover lacked some zeal, but as a plotting executive, he was perfect. Lastly, Sarah Beth Honor and Cynthia J. Clowater play the client and the contractor to Happy Landings Publishing Company. They both portrayed characters who abhor sad stories and avoid tragedy. They played those personalities with a lot of fun and wide smiles, so much that it might have been fun to see more of the characters' happy facades cracks. The sound behind these actors was designed by Kaya Kalis. Their design consisted of quirky music picked out for transitions and a few one-off sounds within the play. Listen for the crying baby if you go see this play. The lights above the actors were designed by Patricia Mesetic. Patricia did so much with such efficiency. Each location in the play felt distinct and nearly each light felt purposeful. Watch for the inventive use of practical fixtures in the show. They are superb. Happy Landings plays for audiences at Broom Street Theater until June 25th. Check bstonline.org for details and tickets to this charming drama and farce. For WORT, I'm Heron Splinter. The weather in Madison hit 94 degrees today with a heat index of 102. And it's not just us humans feeling the heat. On this week's edition of Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg talks about how the staff at the Wildlife Rehabilitation Center help birds beat the heat. I got some news to tell you. 
Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we'll be talking about how birds can control their body temperatures because it is hot outside. Oh my goodness, has it been up in the 90 degree temperatures here in Wisconsin? And I was outside earlier this week here with the Department of Natural Resources doing something called called geese wrangling. And when I say geese wrangling, I mean that there are large numbers of people that get together with some very interesting panels made of PVC pipe and some mesh netting. And we basically herd geese into a small area to put a band on them. And we hope that those bands get returned. And I've definitely talked about banding in past segments here on WORT because I do band wild birds that come into the Wildlife Rehabilitation Center. And after they have been treated and released on release they have a band on which is really exciting so that we know how long our patients live and how they survive but we also have just general wild bird banders that go out and catch birds so we were it was my first time actually experiencing goose banding procedures which i thought was really really fun but man it was hot it was like Ooh, long pants, long shirts, masks and gloves and everything, especially because of the avian influenza situation still going on throughout the United States. And I thought to myself, how do these birds do it? Because if I think of a goose, I think of downy feathers and I think, wow, that's a lot of insulation. It's like what wearing a comforter during the summertime. So I thought to myself, oh, it'd be fun to do a segment about how birds actually thermoregulate or control their body temperature. And then what happens in the hot summertime? So how do they cool off? Um, and there's some really great information if you want to look up on the uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife uh, Services website. So that's the fws.gov. And they definitely have information about some of these techniques, but I thought I would describe them here because it's something we look for in rehabilitation. And we have to know about these, especially in temperature extremes, just so that we are aware of what the physiological responses are from the body and whether or not that could impact their success in rehabilitation. And we don't want a situation where they might overheat in a certain situation because they're in captivity, uh, especially while they're in treatment, because if they're highly stressed or if their body's not functioning correctly, if it's too hot out and there's something that would not be natural for them, which rehabilitation is never a natural circumstance, then we have to monitor for certain things in the extreme weather temperatures to make sure, okay, are we doing the most appropriate thing for this animal right now at this point in time? You could think about the heat in the summer in the 90 degrees here, which definitely these birds would be experiencing outside in the wild, but they'd be able to freely move to areas with shade or they would be able to take a a bath. So everybody knows that bird baths, right? It's pretty popular. There are birds, especially your water birds that are going to spend an entire day maybe uh, thinking about jumping right in and getting their feathers all the way soaked and then just sitting there and sunning and drying their wings and their feathers. I always like to think of anhingas, which are kind of similar to cormorants. If you've ever seen them, they're a diving water bird. They like to, in in Florida is where I've seen them, you know, just stand out on a log in the middle of the water and just open their wings and dry. 
And cormorants do that too, but you know, a lot of our egrets and our heron species will do that. And that's one way that they can drop their body temperature, right? Just like us going to swim in the pool, but they don't sweat like we do. So, you know, when you think about how to get rid of that heat or how to, you know, how the body responds to extreme heat, we think of people sweating, you know, maybe your dog is panting. Birds do kind of pant. They don't really do the exact same thing as other mammals do, but they do something called glolar fluttering. I can never say that. Glolar fluttering. It's basically their throat patch, kind of that area. They flutter the feathers and the and the throat. It's like a vibration almost. And it's like rapid open mouth breathing with vibrations. And it's kind of cool because apparently in this process, the throat membrane, as it's moving, it causes uh, liquid to evaporate. So excess heat goes out of the body while the bird is breathing, and then it's able to cool from that. So I do think that that's a really neat adaptation that's a little bit different from what we might do. And it's not as you know, exact as the the type of panting you might see from mammals. So those are the two biggest things that birds use is the glutteral fluttering, which I can still never say, uh, and then getting uh, a nice bath in the water or trying to find some shade. So other than that, really, it's it's a difficult thing. In rehabilitation, we're always monitoring our patients. So we might go outside to give them fresh water more than once a day during these extreme temperatures with, when it's hot, uh, replace their bathing pans multiple times a day, make sure they have full access to water, especially some of our waterfowl species that are very, very dependent um, on it. If they don't get it, there can actually be even more extreme repercussions like neurological problems if they've been dehydrated that sometimes they can't come back from. So, you know, it's definitely monitoring. It's watching for signs of open mouth breathing from our birds and also making really smart choices, like not catching them in the middle of the day on a hot 90 degree day, because we do monitor our patients' weight and body conditions in rehabilitation. So if we catch those birds once a week to make sure, okay, we're checking their feather condition and their their body, their, their flight muscles, their fat content, all of that kind of stuff, you know, just to make sure that they're healthy so that they can very soon be released. We don't want to do that on a temperature extreme day where that could actually kill them just from stress or again from becoming overheated or opposite in the winter would be too cold and then you know die from hypothermia. So hyperthermia, definitely a thing. Hypothermia, if we're talking winter time, you know, we'll do a, a totally different segment on that and talking about the frozen tundra. Uh, but right now we're in the middle of summer in Wisconsin and we we do have to be cognizant of our, our patient's ability to get water since we are the ones kind of controlling the environment that they live in while they're in treatment. So rehabilitators definitely are on the lookout for any signs, symptoms of hypothermia, making sure they have fresh water, fresh food, anything else that they might need to stay hydrated and try to stay cool. And all of that is included within their uh, appropriate enclosures in our field. So that's how the birds beat the heat, as some people like to say. And uh, I think, you know, we're getting to that time period where birds are starting to shed all those nice uh, feathers. Sorry, they're shedding the really bad feathers to get a whole new set of new nice feathers so that they'll be able to migrate here in the fall. So hopefully that will help a little bit in their ability to thermoregulate as the temperatures start beginning to drop. Thanks for listening today. This was a segment on how birds uh, can thermoregulate and the hot temperatures here in Wisconsin right now. Be on the lookout for birds that are sick or injured or showing signs of hyperthermia. If there's anything you think is wrong, definitely give us a call at 608-287-3235. Thanks for listening. This has been Wildlife Weekly.
It's now 6.49 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Looking up into the stars, it may seem as though we can see everything there is to see in space, right from our own backyards. But some objects, such as black holes, are actually impossible to see. So if we can't see them, how are scientists able to study them? On this week's Radio Astronomy, host Daniel Rybercheck explains just that, and what makes black holes so fascinating to scientists. Welcome to Radio Astronomy. My name is Dan Rabarczyk. Black holes have been in the news a lot recently. In the last couple years, astronomers have detected gravitational waves coming from colliding black holes, and even recently captured images of the superheated material swirling around the black holes at the center of the galaxy M87 and of our very own Milky Way galaxy. But even with these groundbreaking advances, we are only just beginning to directly observe these exotic astrophysical objects. Just this month, another milestone in the detection of black holes was made. But before we talk about that, let's first ask, what even is a black hole? Well, the answer to that question is very complicated. But we can understand black holes on a very basic level if we just think about gravity. Gravity is a fundamental force of nature. It is the force of attraction between two objects. It keeps us bound to the surface of the Earth, it keeps the Earth in orbit around the Sun, and it keeps the stars in the Milky Way held together in a coherent structure that we call a galaxy. But if you move fast enough, you can actually escape the pull of gravity. The speed you need to do that is called the escape velocity. For example, Earth's escape velocity is around 25,000 miles per hour, which means that we need to send rockets at at least that speed to travel into outer space and leave the gravitational pull of the Earth. But if the Earth were denser, its escape velocity would be even higher. If we shrunk all of Earth's mass into the size of a marble, its escape velocity would actually reach the speed of light. At that point, nothing. Not a rocket, not even light itself, could escape its surface. At that point, we would call it a black hole. The name derives from the fact that we can't see it because nothing, not even light, escapes its intense gravitational pull. Now don't worry, the Earth is not at risk of becoming a black hole. But when stars more than about eight times as massive as the Sun reach the end of their lives, they collapse in on themselves and their cores become black holes. This suggests that galaxies should be teeming with these ultra-dense relics of high-mass stars that have lived and died throughout the lifetime of the galaxy. The problem is, because no light can escape them, they are extraordinarily difficult to detect. But just this month, a team of astronomers announced the possible detection of a black hole floating through the galaxy. They used a technique called microlensing. So if the light from a background star passes directly between you and a black hole, the light will reach the black hole and never escape. But if it doesn't pass directly between you and the black hole, if instead it just passes near the black hole, its trajectory will be bent by the black hole's strong gravitational field. The light doesn't pass so close that it falls in on the black hole, 
but it passes close enough that it feels its gravitational effects. This gravitational bending of light is known as microlensing. Astronomers recently observed a microlensing event that pointed to the existence of an extremely dense object, most likely a black hole, transiting between the telescope and some distant stars. The light from the stars was bent in a way that suggested that a black hole had passed between us and them during the observations. So even though the black hole itself is effectively invisible, we can see its effects on light from objects that we can see. One of the researchers said, we have opened a new window onto these dark objects, which can't be seen in any other way. But there's still a lot of work to be done. Researchers can't quite agree on the mass of the object, and some suggest that it may even be a neutron star, the densest object in the universe besides a black hole. More work is needed to understand just what exactly the observations captured. More observations like this could reveal how many black holes there are in the Milky Way, providing tests for theoretical predictions about the evolution of stars and galaxies. That's all for radio astronomy this week. Keep looking up, and when you do, I hope you consider that for all of the beauty you can see in the night sky, there may be even more that you can't see. Have a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Your reporters tonight were Madeline Plattenberg and Layla Ma, while Demorian Thompson was on special assignment. Special thanks to feature contributors Heron Splinter, Jackie Sandberg, and the Radio Astronomy crew. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Nate Weggehout produced this newscast. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Jonah Chester. And I'm your host, Paul Herman. Stay up to date with the WRT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Spanish Language News with Nuestro Patio. Good night.